As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Kathy Wood came out of USC a long time ago, put out a shingle with a Lovelace family at Capital Group, and then built an investment career quite different from others, not so much based on the long-term solidity of a given portfolio, but capturing the trend, going up large, and it's sometimes going down large. She holds court on the ark. Noah's ark is where she is right now. I want to know, with all you've been through the last number of years, are you going to shift to a more long-term strategy? I look at Morningstar, one-year, three-year, five-year, your bottom quartile, but your claim is more short-term. With your new ETF effort and with what you're doing with ARC, are you going to be still on trend or do you invest more for long-term? We, we've always invested for the long-term. And uh, what interrupted what was a very nice move up in innovation stocks, especially disruptive innovation, was a massive increase in interest rates, the likes of which we have never sure, seen. Sure, 24-fold increase. So all long-duration assets, especially in 2022, were destroyed, including bonds, which are usually a flight to safety. They had their worst year last year uh, right. since the 1700s. There's no way in that environment that our strategy would have done well. But I do think that what's happening this year is that the market is starting to look over the Fed's moves, whether there's one more or not, uh, into uh, falling interest rates. You know, we started underperforming in 21 just with the anticipation of rising rates, and even more so in 22. So how are you going to change? I want to know how you're going to change the sobering quarters you've been through. What is the new Kathy Wood approach to macroeconomics frankly, pandemic economics, intruding on your belief in innovation? Uh, if anything, innovation gains traction during tough times. And if you look at how the reason our, our portfolios are outperforming this year is... And they are. And they are. Is it is because they are gaining share in what is becoming a difficult environment, right? right? And so, uh, one by one, we're going to earn our way back, right. and it's all about revenue growth, margin expansion. Okay. In the Wall Street Journal, they do a fabulous thing with old farts like me, and it's people with over $5 million, and they believed in Kathy Wood to a person. Those retirees bought innovation, they bought tech, they bought Apple, 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 and they didn't listen to financial TV or radio. 
Can you do the Kathy Wood approach for one, three, five years, given the volatility you've seen? Yes, I think we're on the other side of that massive interest rate increase, mm -hmm. which did destroy a lot of performance. That's the most important thing. And we are ready for prime time. Many people are concerned about our kind of strategy. And, uh, and uh, the company we just acquired rises mm -hmm. in uh, because in Europe, in London here, uh, for all of Europe and UK, uh, uh, they're focused on global megatrends as well. And, you know, interest rates hurt everyone in that space. If we are right, uh, and rates are going to come down at some point in the next year, you know, the, the market is a discounting mechanism, uh, then uh, I think that uh, the muscle memory that, that hurt our strategy, and it all has everything to do with the tech and telecom bust, and people thinking, oh my gosh, are we here again? No. What happened during the 20 years that ended in the tech and telecom bubble is the seeds for, uh, for what is happening now were planted. Yeah. And, and this, John, is really important and that the profitability stream down the income statement of new tech is very different than 2000 tech. Let's talk about EVs yes. and not just Tesla. Yes. Is it good news for Tesla what's happening in Detroit right now? Um, yes, because if there's a strike, of course, uh, there will be more production shortfalls. Um, uh, you know, I think that there's just now the, the supply chain has freed up, so unfortunately we'll have all kinds of questions about that. But, you know, I don't, I don't think it has anything really to do with the strike. It has uh, everything to do with the consumer preference shift towards better vehicles, electric, uh, that are falling in price. Tesla's leading that, uh, that price decline simply by passing cost declines onto its uh, customers. Uh, so I think that's what's good for Tesla. The complaint we hear is that people can't afford these vehicles. Uh, that what is, we're seeing that in, the is news, changing. in the UK, as you can see, Rishi Sunak is pushing back targets to get rid of all of these internal combustion engines to 2035 from 2030. Yes. Are we being unrealistic about this transition and uh, how difficult we don't this think is so. going to be? No, no, no. We do not think so. We actually, the total cost of ownership, now this is in the United States, it's a little bit different here, <clears> but the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle uh, fell below that of a gas-powered vehicle about two to three years ago. Soon, sticker prices. Does that include going, insurance? Yes, includes insurance. Yes, in, as I said, local differences. But yes, in the United States, that does include insurance. And in fact, Tesla is so sure that uh, its cars will have fewer accidents mm -hmm. and fewer fatalities that it's well, willing to provide right. insurance. So yes, that does include everything, you, all in. You were at USC, you didn't get a B. Laffer called up Robert Kirby at Capital Group and said, just shut up and hire her. So you walk <laughs> into Capital Group, which is the land of an R squared and 98 Washington Mutual Fund Investment Company yes. of America. Yes. Everything is completely diversified out. You're the polar extreme, they threw you out, you almost fell into the Pacific Ocean. They were so upset with you. So you go out and you say, I'm not going tight R squared to SPX. I'm going out and do my own thing. Yes. People have prospered off of innovation and technology. How does that continue in America? Can you be less diversified and win five years out? Well, you mentioned Capital Group, and that is where I did start my career. And that is where um, I saw tremendous research 
and a long-term time horizon. So really what we're doing with ARC is just going back to the future. My initial experience, which was in the late 70s when right. I was in college, and uh, we're doing deep research, first principles based, white sheet of paper. But you're away from an R squared like Washington Mutual or the other funds. What's your R squared right now? Uh, to be honest, we're, the correlation of our uh, performance to broad-based benchmarks is very low. Uh, for better or worse, what it tells what it tells our clients and prospective clients is we uh, we have a very good diversification strategy. Our our funds, the active weight, if you're comparing to MSCI World or S and P or Nasdaq, the active weight is less than five percent. So really good diversification strategy focused on companies uh, that are going to transform the way the world works. Uh, we look at the broad-based benchmarks, and sure, there are companies that are sustaining innovation, like an Apple, but they are not going to transform the way the world works from here. Our companies are. Kathy, thank you. Kathy thank Wood you. of Ark Invest. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority, by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us around the table here in London, the conversations continue. Patrick Armstrong, CIO of Plurimi Wealth. Patrick, good to see you. Good to see you. Are things good or just terrible? Because I can't decide based on our conversation so far. Normal. Things are pretty normal. No Everything feels so different to how it was, but we've got inflation on a track down to something that's going to be sub 3% next year. I don't think it's going to fall to the Fed's mandate. I don't think they want it to. You've got economic growth. That's a potential in the United States. Who would have thought that? You're probably going to go 2% for the U.S. economy this year. That's probably the long-term potential. Interest rates at 5% on the two-year. Pretty normal. Doesn't seem normal over recent yeah. years, but we're, we're in an environment where things are pretty normal. We're going back to the old normal. I think we are going back to the old normal. I think inflation is going to prove to be persistent, sticky with intermittent spikes, um, just because the big picture issues are populism and protectionism from governments. And that's just by its nature inflationary. You've got uh, right. unions coming back like the 70s, maybe a little bit. You've got job seekers having some power. That's inflationary. But you've got disinflationary forces coming from China. And you've got Fed policy at a point where right. it is restrictive. So all of those things, normal. Your charm is your truly cross-asset. At the margin, how are you changing your cross-asset allocation into the fourth quarter? So what we've done over the summer months is we've marginally reduced our equities that have just kept drifting to overweight. We wanted to have neutral weight, but just as equities have performed so well, they kept moving overweight. Mm -hmm. We've moved marginally underweight now. Um, not so much that we're worried about equities. 
that we're getting pretty compelling returns on tips right now, that you're getting a 2% right. real yield. And I, like I said, inflations are still a risk in the long term, but I'm mm. getting the duration there. If we do fall into a recession, we'll see lower yields on conventionals and tips will benefit So from talk that. to our audience uh, at radio and television here, and particularly across America. How does Patrick Armstrong utilize the 10-year inflation-adjusted yield or the five-year inflation-adjusted yield? How do you use that as a tool to have confidence in market allocation? Um, well, the 10-year break-even is 2.3%. And my view is we're going to have persistent above Fed target inflation. So I want to be hedged against that. I'm happy to get a real yield of 2%. Um, you put your capital at risk to preserve capital as a starting point and grow the purchasing power of that over time. The tip provides that to you right now on the 10-year, so I like duration there. But you're being compensated with really high yields on, we talked about J J uh, Diamond. Yeah. JP Morgan bonds, I'm getting 6% on a two-year, and, and that's almost a risk. That's a Chris investment. Whalen moment. Yeah. He's channeling Chris Whalen, those JP Morgan preferreds, Whalen would say. Should we do single names? A lot of people at the start of the year were getting jacked up on LVMH. Portfolios. I was one of them. You were too. You backed away. Yeah. You stepped away. The poster chart of the European market now is Nova Nordisk. Where are you on that? That's my biggest stock right now. And again, it's come from drifting. Um, the pandemic used to be COVID. The pandemic's obesity and diabetes in the West. And Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, they don't have monopoly positions, but they got the dominant share yeah. here, growing earnings. If luxury come in enough off China Gloom, Bernstein, I believe, is out with a note overnight saying we've got some ratios of luxury back to 2008. Is it pulled back enough for Patrick Armstrong? No, almost. Um, so I sold LVMH in March. It was at 32 times forecast earnings. We're now in the mid-20s. I bought it in October the previous year when it was at 21 times. That's a small premium to the market multiple. That's where I'd like to buy it. So I think well, it's fair. Folks, right there, we don't do much equity chat because, you know, who cares? The answer is what you just <laughs> heard there from Patrick Armstrong is a clinic on how you bracket a beloved dominant stock. I was with you. We were talking about it when you backed out of LVMH. You kept MS though. We did, yes. What was that? Um, well, I didn't want to move against uh, what I still think is the dominant trend is the spending power of uh, high net worth individuals and also the immunity to input prices. Um, Rishwan talked about inflation hurting spending power of people, but at the input prices are things that are hurting mass market retailers and it doesn't impact uh, right. the high end luxury. So what's the distinctive feature of the Dumas family at Hermes? What are they doing differently? Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, Deborah Aitken is just brilliant on this and she singles out a few of these names. What is the, the Hermes model that makes them different from 47 other luxury brands? Um, the, the leather goods part of it is incredible. The margins, the growth they get there, and uh, it, people pay up for that. And there's just a waiting lines of cues for that side of things. But it's uh, their brand management, um, their Hermes scarves and ties and the leather goods. It's all, uh, yeah. We touched on it briefly. Let's finish there. Nova Nordisk. We're already up 40% yeah. this year. The stock's been climbing for five consecutive years. Can you spend just a little bit of time, a couple of minutes, just outlining how big this opportunity actually is? Well, it, it was a vanity-type drug, their weight loss. Um, it is a vanity product, basically, that people in Europe, America, and it China... It um, <laughs> <laughs> They spent the money to look good, feel good. Um, but uh, what they found is the, the heart disease and the benefits on that, it may become an insurable product as well. So that just expands the potential market where you're not just getting vanity uses, but health uses, which may be insurable as well. So a uh, heart and stroke disease, it's... Um, it, it does expand the market a lot because it's an expensive product that a lot of people can afford. It may move much more mar mass market because of that. The run on this stock, Tom, has been phenomenal. 
absolutely phenomenal. I'm not sure where we are right now versus LVMH, but certainly at one point earlier this year, it was bigger than LVMH, right? It's, I think it's bigger right now. They're, they're basically the same market caps. Can there be European exceptionalism without technology? The way we trumpet Apple and the other 18 states. Well, Nova Nordisk, I think, is a form of U.S. exceptionalism. Yeah, I, it's just I, yeah, the wrong it's, kind of U.S. exceptionalism, but, right? Yeah. It's buoyant, to say the least. It's, um, yeah, it's exceptionalism is very clear in U.S. in technology. Um, Europe yeah. can compete in healthcare. It's shown no ability to Quickly, are you buying big oil? You buying big oil here Love with $100 it. a barrel? Um, basically, there's going to be more oil consumed in the next three months. We've already had more oil consumed today. Single Best Buy. History. Come on, Patrick Armstrong, Single Best Buy, big oil. EOG, I like, uh, rather than the integrated uh, exploration production. Patrick, good to see you. Patrick Armstrong of Plurimi Wealth. Elsa Lingos is hugely qualified. Global head of foreign exchange strategy at RBC, tour of duty, uh, working in Europe with different institutions to look at the political economics of the moment as well. You know, to you, I can say, like, what's Euro going to do or what's Sterling going to do? What are they going to do if they actually get disinflation? Can you call a disinflationary trend in place yet? Too soon for that. But I do think this morning's CPI data will be very welcome news from the Bank of England um, perspective because they'll feel like finally their policy measures are biting and they're removing some of that tail risk of stagflation. How many months or quarters do you need to establish a disinflationary trend? Not the data dependency, the media's focus on one surgical point. But what's your timeline to say trend in place? I think it's also the composition of inflation, right? Because we've seen headline inflation come off on energy prices. In fact, if anything, now ticking back up again, as we saw yesterday in Canada. Mm -hmm. So really what we're focusing on is that core measure, even more so the super core measure. What's happening to those demand-driven components of inflation? And are those weakening enough to signify that we're going to get to target? And Paul Krugman with a brilliant essay out, folks, wheelhouse for the Nobel laureate on trends. He's looking at disinflation, and I love what he says about plain vanilla inflation. John Farrell's family in England is living plain vanilla, 6% plus inflation. Do people like you and these elites, do they look at plain vanilla inflation? I mean, you see plain vanilla inflation across the board, right? And I think that's the important part about the current rise in energy prices. Because for all that central banks like to look through those and focus on core inflation, if headline inflation goes up, comes down a bit, goes up again, because in oil prices or commodity prices don't really come off, what does that mean to your average consumer? They're their kind of lived experience is that prices just keep going up. I can't believe we're sitting here and we've got this note from Bank of, not the Bank of England, from the Goldman Sachs team on the Bank of England, yeah. suggesting we're done here when inflation is in the high sixes. Can you make sense of that for our audience? If we were in the high sixes in the United States, we'd be talking about the prospect of a 50 basis point hike from the Federal Reserve this afternoon. Why are we talking about the Bank of England being done with inflation in the high sixes and wage growth pushing 8%? I think it's the wage growth that's more important, right? Because don't forget, the Bank of England looked through high inflation in the immediate aftermath of the GFC. And there was a long period where Mervyn King was writing regular letters to the Chancellor about inflation being outside the target ban, and yet, you know, they were happy to leave <coughs> it's that which is the difference. It's the fact that they're happy to look through it if they feel like their policy is working. And I will say this morning's data do make tomorrow's decision much more finely balanced. Simon French of Panmo Gordon was in your seat yesterday. He suggested that this Bank of England has a communication problem, a credibility issue. Do you agree? 
Yeah, it's hard to say they don't. And I think more than anything, it's the inconsistency in the messaging that people struggle with. I mean, sure, this is a particularly difficult time to be forecasting. I think economists have struggled with that <coughs> on the sell side and the buy side. But from the Bank of England's perspective, it's the fact that that message seems to change every month rather than just sticking to this data dependency mantra. You speak 14 languages. You've got parchment and physics from Cambridge. I want you to talk about the physics of Christine Lagarde's speech at Jackson Hole. You've lived the ECB theory, the ECB process, if you will. Is there any hope and prayer that e the ECB can get away from the data dependency that she despises? Sadly, not really. And I think the reality is that you've got so many competing views on governing council. You saw that just over the weekend, right? They had that announcement last week, and then they already came out with voices saying, oh, we should be doing more. We're not quite done yet. And it's that kind of cacophony of voices right. which ends up with the data dependency. Well, you two are expert on this, John. You've lived it as well as, as, as Elsa. And what I find fascinating here is the simplistic American view of Bundesbank versus Portugal. <laughs> now, it's not that way. You both know it's, it's richer and more complex. To be honest, my good friend Christine Lacard doesn't have a chance on this. There's no chance that they're going to take a more holistic, longer Philip Lane trend Here's the difference. in policy. Under Draghi, who was not a consensus builder, he would bully the governing council into a corner and say, we're doing this. And he'd have to get the Bundesbank to come along. Lagarde is a consensus builder, but she gets an easy time of it now because Germany's the weak spot. Germany's the weak spot. And what I don't hear from the hawks on the governing council, they're not screaming rate hikes. They're not screaming rate hikes at all. So how much of a deal was there actually to strike on the governing council last week? People make out it was a deal between doves and hawks. The hawks that I'm hearing from aren't that hawkish at the ECB, are they? Well, they're a lot less hawkish than they used to be because, as you say, Germany itself is feeling the weakness. But also Draghi, in many ways, had to do that, right? Because it was a crisis situation yeah. and that forced his hand. Whereas now, we're not really there. We're kind of in a situation where central bankers have a bit more time to assess, to be data dependent, to build that consensus. I I teased this a little bit earlier when we were assessing what was happening with Sterling. And Lisa raised the question, I think it's a really important question to ask regarding the UK and Sterling, but I think we can take this broadly to Europe and the Euro. How important are rate differentials for currency pairs at the moment? When you see developments in the UK, is this kind of development meant to be Sterling weaker or Sterling stronger? What does it mean? fully agree with Lisa that it's ambiguous. Right? I've heard a lot of people, probably more from the sell side than the buy side, trying to talk up sterling <clears> as this carry trade. There's much better carry out there. I mean, if you really want carry, you're going to Mexico, you're going to Brazil. Like, the UK is not necessarily where you're going to get it. Um, but at the same time, the fact that, like I said earlier, you kind of remove some of that tail risk of stagflation, that's a good thing. And from a policy credibility perspective, mm -hmm. it's good that the Bank of England is finally seemingly getting inflation under control. What is your question for Paul today? You're in the press conference. McKee gives the last question. They go, go, Lingos, you're here. We'll give you one. What's your question to Jerome Powell today from your EU perspective? I'd be really interested to hear how he's thinking about the run-up in energy prices and the feed-through that will have to headline inflation. Well, wait. Well, stop the show here. Halima Croft. Okay, you've got someone yes. who's pretty good at this, right? Yeah. What does the wonderful Halima Croft... Halima, wonderful to see you. Thanks so much for stopping by. Halima Croft, what does she say about this move to 100? I think she's been bang on the money with that call. Now that we're there, it becomes a lot less obvious that we continue further from here. But she was very open and, and talking a lot about it earlier in the year and markets were just ignoring it for a while. They were ignoring the supply cuts, the production cuts. We're here now. We feel the impact. Can Powell ignore this later on this afternoon? 
I mean, let's see. It's a very short intermeeting period between September and November. December is probably the time they need to make that call. Do you think the Bank of England can ignore it a little bit more? I'm just wondering, who, who is this more important to? <coughs> Governor no, Bailey? Ultimately, Powell? UADA, we can almost forget about. Uh, the Bank of Japan are not doing anything anytime soon, and even when they do, it's going to be tiny. Now, I'd be most concerned in the ECB's position. Energy importer, you still have that regional difference between US energy prices and European, and they're the ones really that are yeah. facing the economic weakness. We are staggering beyond Duisenberg through Trichet. John mentions the wonderful Draghi of Italy and now Lagarde. Is the ECB a more mature institution now? Or are they still making it up as they go, as they did when Marsing was there? And absolutely more mature. And, you know, you've got to remember they've been now in existence for over 20 years. They've been through several crises that's knitted <coughs> them together. But more than anything, the fact that it's the core now feeling the weakness, I think. Yeah, that John mentioned that. Naturally. I didn't mention together. that. John mentioned that. <laughs> Jane Foley talked about the prospect of parity <coughs> on the euro in the new year. Are you going go. there yet? Can we finish there? Come, we so, <laughs> Come on. We've had 104 okay. for year-end forecast since the start of the year. And that hasn't changed. But we looked into 2024 and actually said, why should it stop here? Why should it bounce back? We've got 102. Could we get to parity? Sure, maybe. I just don't think it will stay there long. Okay. Bold. Alsa, thank you. Oh, That's quite a call so far in the year. We'll see how we end it, but <clears throat> quite a call so far. Alsa, thank you. Alsa Lindos there of RBC. <laughs>certainly stays on hold and certainly also continues to maintain a hawkish bias is how on this color are we talking about their confidence that they're done here and and i think of course they're going to continue to maintain that bias they're going to give us some sense of progress on inflation some mm -hmm. ongoing concern i don't think we're going to get a strong message and quite frankly i don't think it's going to tell us that much in a world in which the data right. is going to decide what the fed is going to do over the next few meetings our optionality, our ambiguity, our degrees of freedom and all the other mumbo-jumbo buttresses up against Michael Faroli's arch call on potential GDP. That goes into our start. Do you have a low statistic on potential GDP? Does that give you a low R start, that goal that Jerome Powell says he's trying to get to? 
Well, I think there's two things here. One, which is perhaps most important, is uh, potential GDP is low, but cyclically there are a number of forces which have raised what interest rate is consistent with stabilizing inflation and stabilizing utilization rates. So I think that's what's operational uh, for the current environment. The second point, uh, Mike and I have both been writing about the hints that U.S. supply-side performance is actually improving. We've been running 250000 a month on labor supply this year. Productivity growth, which has been stuck in the low ones, looks like it's moving higher on an underlying basis. It's too early to get confident about this, but it does feel to us right. that U.S. supply-side and performance is actually improving here. I know you and Bob Michael aren't on speaking terms, but just the few times where you've got to get together and dovetail your economics into Bob Michael's fixed income, which I believe is price moving against yield. Can you make a yield call here? If we get Kasman disinflation, do yields come down? I think it's going to be a while before yields come down. If we're right, inflation is going to stay sticky here. Uh, the Fed is not going to have the room to ease anytime soon. The economy is not really at, at material threat of going into recession anytime soon. So I think, you know, 4% 10-year yields, 5.5% policy rates is going to be with us for a while. Bruce, you touched on it, and I think it's a really important aspect I mentioned of the Federal Reserve conversation today and into this decision and news conference, the extent to which this labour market has rebalanced. Do you think that rebalancing is close to complete then, Bruce? No. Uh, we have a very tight labour market. We still have very elevated wage inflation. I think we're seeing good signs on the labour market that things are moving in the right direction. But whether we get all the way back to what is consistent with the Fed achieving its inflation target, I think is still not by any means uh, determined. Uh, from my point of view, I think it's more likely that things stick at a level that's going to keep the Fed uncomfortable over the next year. Does that mean low unemployment with elevated inflation or higher unemployment with elevated inflation? Because one mix is a lot more toxic than the other. I think it's most likely the unemployment rate stays below 4%. I think it's most likely that wage inflation stays at 4% or higher. I think it's most likely in that environment the Fed is not going to have the opportunity to ease. And the question is whether or not that restrictive stance over time undermines what is still a pretty healthy uh, U.S. private sector uh, and eventually causes an end to the expansion or whether the supply side improvement, right. whether some of the other supports can carry us along here and put us on a path to a, uh, a soft landing. I'm in a boil the frog scenario, which is the first one I described, but I think it's still a pretty close call here as to how the environment plays out over the next year or two. I mean, Bruce Kazan, what's so important here is simply there was a pandemic. Are we beyond the pandemic? Are we beyond supply side studies where we're getting back to Kazman 101? Look, I think we're beyond the I hope we're beyond the pandemic in terms of its impact, uh, direct impact on economic activity. But I think there's two issues here. One, we're still in an unwind of some of the pandemic dislocations. That's why what, what inflation coming down is about. Uh, that's what some of the normalization going on in service sectors are about. We're not quite done with it. We're starting to get closer to the end. And then we're dealing also with the reverberations of this pandemic on a more lasting basis. Mm -hmm. And a couple right. of them are the damage done to the supply side globally. Uh, and I also think the health of the private sector balance sheet, which is a really weird thing right. to say, comes out of such a bad event as a pandemic.
Bruce, let me expand on it. This was one thought, and you pick up on it. Can China export disinflation or a deflationary trend? What does J.P. Morgan see of domestic China exported out across the world? I think China is exporting uh, deflation and goods pricing to the rest of the world. Chinese uh, production is picking up right now. You see import prices in Europe and the U.S. from China uh, going down sharply. We think global industry is starting to pick up. China's benefiting from it. So I think the Chinese economy is going to be weak, but not hit the fears, I think, of a real disaster that people expect. I think global industry is picking up. I think China is going to keep a lid on global goods price inflation, uh, as among other things, for a while, except, of course, for what we're seeing in oil. So, Bruce, just before you go, I've got to do a little bit of housekeeping. The takeaway from this conversation, high for longer, got all of that. Can we just play with the dot plot a little bit and get out to 2024? What do you think that dot plot will look like later on this afternoon? Well, the most important is probably 23, and it looks like you're going to have a divided committee. We're on the side of them still having the median voter with a dot, but it's a close call. I think regardless of that and regardless of big changes in the forecast for 23, the 24 forecast is still going to have something close to 100 basis points of easing. It's still going to have a big drop in inflation. Uh, it's still going to have an aspiration that we get an unemployment rate up to 4.5% without a recession. And you don't buy it, Bruce? <laughs> I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm not uh, pounding the table on it, but I'm still skeptical we can heal here without more damage being done to demand. Bruce, thank you, sir, for the update from right. JP Morgan. Bruce Kassman there. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.